and welcome to the Francis Farmer Show. And there is a reason why Mike always does these introductions and not me, but Mike is not here this week. It's me, Sean, and I am joined by the first guest host in the history of the uh, George Sanders Show, Francis Farmer Show uh, podcast, uh, Melissa Taminga. Hello, it's an honor to be here. Uh, Melissa, of course, was on our uh, uh, podcast from the Vancouver Film Festival last fall, and here she is making her Frances Farmer debut. Uh, she's, of course, a writer for the Seattle Screen Scene, which is our website. Yes, I am. <laughs> I write uh, sometimes there. Yes. <laughs> Uh, and this week we are going to be talking about a couple of movies, one of which will be opening in Seattle and around the country in a couple of weeks, and the other which just recently came out on uh, uh, Blu-ray from the Criterion Collection. Uh, we're going to talk about Edward Yang's 1990 film, A Brighter Summer Day, and Soi Chang's 2015 martial arts film, SPL2, A Time for Consequences, which is being released in the U.S. under the very bland and generic title Kill Zone 2. Yes, which I think there's a video game also called that if you Google it. So that's the wrong one. Yeah, not, it has no relation to any video game that I know of. Uh, we're also going to talk about Prince because, you know, Prince. We have to. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, some stuff coming up in uh, on Seattle screens, and we'll be making our picks for the essential violent youth movie. Indeed. Are you looking forward to that? <laughs> I am looking forward to that, especially because yeah. I knew that that's what we were doing about two hours ago. <laughs> so hey, yeah. it's going to be a major essential pick that I've spent many hours thinking about. There are plenty of violent youths out there and lots of movies about them. There are. Cinema is a kind of obsessed with violent youth. Yeah. And one of, I think, uh, spoiler alert, the very best violent youth films is A Brighter Summer Day. And how about we listen to a clip from that right now? Sounds great. All 
All right, so that was Edward Yang's A Brighter Summer Day, which has long been a highly anticipated release from the Criterion Collection. I think they they first hinted at it like four or five years ago that they're going to be putting it out, and it became kind of a, a, a Criterion white whale. It's like it was always rumored to be coming, and then it kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed for whatever reason. Uh, I heard at one point that it was it was music rights because the song. Uh, mm. illegally appropriates a, a couple of Elvis tunes. Uh, okay, sure. I heard it, it might have been the restoration quality that Criterion wasn't satisfied with the the initial restoration that was done on it and wanted to do their own. I don't know, but it doesn't matter now because it's out on Blu-ray and, and I own it and I'm very happy about that. It looks beautiful. Yeah, it, it really does. Uh, so A Brighter Summer Day came out in 1990, and it is four hours long, and it is based on a true story that happened in 1960 or 61 in Taiwan that uh, Edward Yang remembered from his youth and decided to make a movie about it. And it follows uh, a whole bunch of characters basically revolving around a couple of rival uh, high school, junior high street gangs in Taipei. Uh, the main character is uh, Zhao Xir, or who is played by a very young 14-year-old Cheng Chen. Uh, he has various run-ins with, uh, with rival gang members. He makes friends. He meets a girl who he likes very much. Uh, he has a father who's trying to make a living as an exile in Taipei and who gets drawn into uh, uh, complicated uh, activities of his own and eventually gets like arrested by the secret police for a while. Uh, it's a really, really vast film. And it, it, it all it kind of builds up to this one kind of horrible incident which became very famous in... in in Taipei, but the film isn't about so much that as it is just kind of recreating the whole the whole texture of life of this generation of kids growing up in exile in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I mean, there historically, I think you know you have to have like a basic understanding of the history of Taiwan. I think the movie kind of spells it out basically which is that at the end of World War II, there's a civil war in China. The nationalists, Kuomintang, lost, and uh, millions of nationalists fled the communists from the mainland into Taiwan. Uh, and this film takes place, it starts, I think, 10 years after that civil war ended. So there's this whole new generation that's growing up with you know, disconnected from their homeland with parents who are in exile and don't really understand everything. And they're growing up under a military dictatorship and kind of all of that chaos that has been their entire life is reflected in the social relationships that they have with each other. Right. And um, Taiwan was called Republic of China, is that right? And it was sort of allied with the, the U.S. at the time and kind of was the recognized regime uh, as the legitimate government of China. Yeah, the, and, the Republic of China was the, the, the Kuomintang government was the, the recogni internationally recognized government of China. Uh, and 
the the communists and the the nationalists, the the, the Kuomintang, uh, fought a civil war. The the communists won, and the Republic of China government went into exile in Taiwan, and but stopped, kept calling themselves the Republic of China and claiming dominion over the whole country right. while they're in exile, and right. uh, until the 1970s, that was the case. Like China's seat in the United Nations was the Republic of China's seat. It wasn't communist China until, right. uh, until Nixon went to China and basically diplomatically recognized communist China. China, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and, uh, you know, and it remains the, the case now, it's like a reverse situation where communist China claims that Taiwan is part of China, but Taiwan doesn't necessarily agree, but Taiwan can't declare its independence because if they do, then China will invade. And it's U.S. policy that there's only one China, even though we had they there are two separate governments in them. Right. It's all very. It's. It's all very Chinese. <laughs> it's very where, very complex and Chinese. And... Where the 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 form of the thing is one thing, and then the actuality is the other. And as long as you kind of pay respect to the form you can kind of do whatever you want in actuality right and it seems that that tension is and that reality is sort of played out within the context of the film and the characters and their kind of mentally divided existence in a way what the the sort of break or the disjunction between the form and what is accepted and then what's kind of going beneath the surface in terms of personal identity and emotion and even family relationships and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, you see, you see it on, in Hong Kong films a lot. Also like, uh, this is like the driving force behind Johnny Toe's election films where, where the, the criminal gangs have like this ritual that they have to go through. Uh, and everyone has to pay respect to this kind of ideal of criminal government that they have, but the mm-hmm. actual, activities that the the gang leaders do are totally in violation of all of those uh uh stated norms of behavior yeah and there's there are a number of like key scenes that are sort of reflective of that in in this film there's one scene in particular it's maybe one of the most obvious ones where the the two youth gangs have kind of come together to um do this concert in this kind of uneasy Alliance, and then the anthem plays, and I'm assuming it's the national anthem of Taiwan. The Taiwan, yeah. Um, and then there, and everyone is kind of standing, but it's this very awkward. We're recognizing this, and yet, kind of what they're they're doing has nothing to do with them recognizing um, or, or being in a heartfelt connection to that form, that formality of the anthem, and even standing for the anthem. And then, of course, there's the one character who is is just walking through it and, and disregarding it. Yeah, and he's he's also the one who's like in the actual military. Like all of the rest right. of the kids are in military style schools and military style uniforms at their, their junior high schools. Uh, but he is actually like run away and joined the Navy. And he's the only one who is not paying respect to the national anthem. The national anthem, yeah. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, I, I am curious what you thought about this film because I, as everyone listening to this knows, I am a big fan of, of Chinese cinema. Uh, so, you know, this was, it, this has long been one of my favorite films. It's, it's something that I've only been able to see in uh, a very uh, uh, 
fuzzy form because it's yeah. never been released on on DVD uh, before. Uh, yeah. So so what what did you think? I I I ended up loving it, but I think it's it's one of those films that you sort of have to sink sink into and um, sort of begin to figure out what the pacing of it is because it is a long film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started watching it with my, my husband, Yuri, and he was falling asleep after an hour. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, because the pacing of it is, I mean, it, ultimately it does build up to this, this um, violent act. And there's actually um, a, a number of violent acts that are throughout the film that are kind of simmering beneath the surface of the entire film that I keeps that keeps rationing up the tension. And yet um, the, the pacing of it isn't like any other, many other films that you see ever. So you kind of, there's a bit of a disorientation going on in terms of how do I access the kind of the pacing of this. But um, once I kind of I think was able to sink into that I did I, I love the idea of a film that is essentially novelistic in which you are immersing yourself in the lives of so many characters even though we are following uh, essentially one main character but you spend time with all of the various relationships that this this person um, is related to um, and so and, and those become very important for him and his own development and his own identity. And so there's something just truly marvelous about the, the complexity of that and uh, a film that, that takes the time to build all of those relationships and all the complexities of those relationships. And then also the time really to build your sense of the world uh, itself. Uh, as you mentioned earlier on, it, it seems like Yang is really wanting to evoke that era uh, and the time. And so there, there are these various objects that keep kind of popping up throughout the film, which on the one hand, they feel stylized because it, there's a lot of similar color repetitions um, and repetitions of just the form and the framing of things. And yet it also feels like this is a very real place and there's a very real texture here that is, that's going on in this world that feel that is so specific um, and so kind of the longer you're in the world, the more you feel like you begin to kind of know what it is um, and, and you're able to, even if it is a very foreign environment in that sense for an American, someone who is, you know, doesn't speak uh, Chinese, Mandarin or um, Cantonese or Taiwanese or Shanghaiese <laughs> or, or any of the languages they speak in this film, um, it, it begins to feel very um, familiar in a way, which is which is odd. And I think also it speaks to, again, even though it is a very specific kind of environment and a very specific kind of point in history, it, it there's also just these very universal, universal themes about some people figuring out who they are and what their identity is and that sense of dislocation that I think almost anybody feels at various times in their lives. I mean, especially when you're kind of growing up and you're figuring out who I am and becoming an adult. Um, but also because the film spends so much time with the adult characters, especially the parents, there is also this sense that they don't have it figured out either. And they're also trying to figure out who they are. And that, uh, that feels very much like something that I can relate to. 
because I don't have it figured out <laughs> yeah, now either. Yeah. In, in a lot of ways, like the, the father is just as lost as, as her son is. And yes, uh, he's, he's played their actual father and son is Chang, Chai, Chang Chen's father is playing his father in the film. Yes. Uh, and it's, it's a, his story I think is, is almost as interesting as his son's and, and it, and it feels weird in a movie that's four hours long, but I, I wish that there was more. I know. I, I agree. Yeah. His, his story is, is so compelling. And I think it is a really interesting parallel that is set up between these two, the father and the son mm-hmm. figure. And there are these kind of repeated moments where they are walking together or riding their bikes together and they're, uh, um, and that's repeated kind of at the beginning of the film and towards the end of the film and kind of in the middle. Um, but they are, yeah, they're both kind of figuring out who they are. And I think trying to find a, a point of integrity to cling to and not really knowing what that is or what that, what that anchor is, um, in either one of their lives. Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, you, you, you said it was novelistic and, and I mean, that is, that's also the first like word in my notes on the film. Mm. And I think, I don't, I don't know that you can, that there's any better word to describe it. And I think, I think that term gets used a lot for films, especially, especially for longer films. And usually yeah. what it means is that there's a lot of plot mm. or that there's a lot of characters, like there's a lot of stuff going on in that it feels like a massive book, like, like, uh, like a Game of Thrones type story Mm -hmm. uh this is not that it's it's novelistic uh psychologically in that in that you really get inside uh the character's head and you see things from their their points of view in a way that you don't in a normal film where where the perspective is more outside uh where you're like following along a plot like yang really wants to get inside all of the character's heads and that mm-hmm. takes time to do that in order to build uh, uh sympathy and identification with with various characters and it requires like incredible patience on the part of of the the filmmaker and also the viewer yeah because yeah. you know it's it's a small accumulation of of detail that by the last you know by the second half of the film you you feel like you know the the characters in the environment so well that when they begin to, to change and you begin to, to find out that maybe, you know, uh, they are not what you thought they were. Yeah. Or that Cheng Chen begins to figure out that they are not what he thought they were. It becomes yeah. really, really heartbreaking and, and tragic mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. you when you see him, when you see his perspective broaden to the point of psychosis. Right, it, exactly. And yeah, that, that's exactly what it is, that, that it isn't these kind of major events that are happening, as you say, kind of these these big plot um, arcs, but it is this accumulation of gestures even, and these small moments of characters interacting, or even another character observing other characters, listening to their voices, listening to their conversations. And then, as you say, once you get to some of these more, what you might typically think of as climactic moments, those have so much weight behind them. Um, and it's not in a sensational kind of way, but as you say, the kind that really grabs at your your own heart and um, a mind in a way that most films just don't do, even you know, very effective 
films. Yeah, and I don't know. It's it's hard to like think of anything, anything analogous to it in mm-hmm. in cinema. Like uh, I thought of uh, like season four of The Wire. Uh huh. <laughs> Except Which I still that, that haven't all, seen, but yeah. I mean, and and that that one focuses on a group of kids in in a high school and they're growing up, but there's also like police procedural elements going on around mm-hmm. them, and there's like, you know, there's, you know, it's it's building an entire like like city, yeah, uh, institutional you know collapse mm-hmm. story around that, whereas mm-hmm. this is just focusing on the kids, right, and and one set of or a couple sets of parents but mostly just the kids mostly the uh, kids right i also thought of uh the other the the other uh next closest analog is uh is ho Shen's uh 1985 film a time to live time to die mm. which, yeah i was reading a little bit about that mm-hmm. yeah it's it's set uh in about the same period it's it's uh mostly autobiographical about about Ho uh growing up in a small town in in Taiwan where uh he uh he and his family were also exiles from from China at the end of the civil war uh and uh as as he grew up he was kind of a, a delinquent he kind of got into to these kind of youth gangs that the the kids in brighter summer day also do uh much less violent in in ho's mm-hmm. case it's more like comic violence in mm-hmm. his as opposed to like the really serious kind of crimes that go on in a brighter summer day right mm-hmm. uh but it's the the similar sense of like a generation trying to to figure itself out mm-hmm. growing up in in this really like traumatic environment. Like I, I think, I think world war two, uh, still is like underestimated in the effects that it had on like, on just American psychology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like the whole generation Agree. just, mm-hmm. uh, growing up in, in first the depression and then the war and the psychological yeah. scars that that must have left, uh, mm-hmm. are still being felt today. Mm-hmm. But you, you, you you had exactly that in Taiwan, but you also had 50 years of war before that because right. Taiwan was taken over by Japan. By the in, Japanese, in like right. The mm-hmm. late 19th century. So you have mm-hmm. a Japanese occupation, then you have the, uh, uh, the eight years of war against the Japanese and then four years of war against the communists. And then you have like this this brutal military dictatorship that is controlling Taiwan up until like the 1980s. Uh, yeah. So the the psychological scars from that are just unfathomable to me. Yeah, and even just the sense of who who are we now? I mean, are we you know do we identify some things with the Japanese? Do we identify now with these new military, the mainland Chinese who have come in? Do we even have some associations with the U.S. now? Like, what is our what is our kind of major um, sense of what we're rooted in yeah, as a kind and- of a people? And the the impacts of of Westernization in particular are are, are felt throughout the film, I, and they're often. A lot of this seems to me like like these fourteen, fifteen year old kids, uh, basically mistranslating everything that <laughs> they come into contact with, and that's yeah. and that's like the the uh the 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 title of the film is a, a mistranslation of a line from uh, an Elvis song. Uh, yeah. because they're transcribing it because they don't actually speak English 
mm-hmm. uh, the the kid who wants to sing it. So he gets Cheng Chen's sister, who does speak English, to transcribe it for him phonetically. Uh, yeah. And she hears it as a brighter summer day, but that is apparently not what the actual line is. Yeah, I looked it up. It's a brighter sunny day. Yeah. Does your memory stray to a brighter sunny day when I kissed you and called you sweetheart? Yeah, but it's Elvis and he but, kind of, he kind yeah. of mumbles. Uh, it, it is. Yeah, if you listen to Elvis sing it, you're like, yeah, I think I would have translated it summer also. Yeah. <laughs> and it sounds better that way. It but, does sound that better, yeah. But, but I mean, it's not just like pop culture relics. It's also like the movies that they see and... Mm-hmm. Uh, most importantly, Westerns. it's it's the actions of their parents' generation that they are trying to replicate because the these the the parents, the people who run their country, are basically just grown up versions of these street gangs, always like trying to get an edge or scheme on using violence to get mm-hmm. whatever you know to to achieve whatever ends they have. And that's what happens to Chang Chen's father is that he's like being manipulated by this old friend of his from school. And, yeah. uh, and the son sees that and doesn't really understand what's happening. And we don't really understand exactly what's happening there either. Uh, right. I think it's left intentionally vague. Mm-hmm. But you, you can see the, the, the young kid who, as the film begins everyone thinks he's he's a bookworm thinks he's smart and he's skinny and he doesn't they don't think that he is a tough guy and throughout the film he's trying to prove how tough he is that he doesn't want to be taken advantage of in the same way his father has been right exactly and his his father too um interestingly it, it he has this there's this pressure i think throughout the film that the family feels for the children to want their children to have in some way a better life or even to be better than they are in in some way and yet the father isn't really giving his son kind of much to go on because as you said he keeps playing back into these particular relationships but he also kind of like his son has a tendency maybe to erupt into some kind of violence or temper and there's a and there's a really heartbreaking scene in which he um does erupt into violence and and beats the the eldest son for um a misunderstanding of this the son kind of takes it but he um, believes that he's um, done something that he shouldn't have done. And he just keeps beating him and beating him. And at first the, the mother is like, you know, apologize to your father, but then it kind of gets out of control. And you realize that he has no kind of control over his own actions or his own his violence. He can't, he can't rein it in or he doesn't know how to well, that, kind of and rein that, it in. But that also only comes after he's been imprisoned by, right. the, by the secret police. So it's like it's that act of violence against him being played out on on his son. Right. So it's this kind of repetition of this this world and there's no way really to break the the cycle of that. Yeah. And I think his um, his tendency toward violence too also plays into the way that in that interrogation he he kind of felt that he had a stable job. Like I work for the government, he's a civil servant. And, and yet that interrogation kind of strips away all of that kind of security and stability and his sense of who he was and his place in the world. And so when all of that is, is stripped away, he's just kind of left not really knowing who he is or what his place is. And the only thing he can do is try to assert some kind of control. Um, and it seems like that's the same thing that's playing out with the with the the youth gangs that they they don't really know who they are or what their place is and they're trying on these various roles of 
pop culture or um, power. Um, and the only way they can kind of maybe assert some control or figure out identity is through these kind of acts of, of violence um, and control that is really arbitrary. There's no, there's, yeah. They don't really have anything to be angry at each other about. There's yeah. not like a real enemy there. There's no, there's no ideology at stake in, right. in any of these power plays. Like even the, the secret police, their, their tactic of what, uh, of the kind of confession they're trying to get uh, Cheng Chen's father to give is exactly the same as the techniques that communists use at the same time. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and then into the Cultural Revolution. Like if you've seen The Last Emperor, it's exactly the same kind of thing where they just sit the guy down there and say, uh, tell us everything. Yeah, <laughs> right. And then they're like, you didn't tell us about this. Why didn't you tell yeah. us about this? What are you trying to hide? Yeah. And they just make him keep rewriting his life story until he's done whatever it is they want to know. And they won't tell him what they want to know. No, because they don't know what they want to know. Because as you said, there's no real ideology. Because they don't, they don't really want to know. It's just about, it's about power. It's, yeah, it's about power and control. And um, yeah, the, the, that's such an empty then thing. And I think that the father recognizes that, but doesn't really know how to get away from it or get outside of it. Because he's 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 they're really trapped. Like they there's mm -hmm. not really anything they can do. Like uh, the uh, in in time to live, time to die. Uh, Ho Ho says that uh, uh, his father only bought wicker furniture for their house mm -hmm. because they always assumed that they would be leaving back to the mainland anytime. Mm -hmm. So they didn't. Mm -hmm. They weren't there permanently. Mm -hmm. It was all just temporary. Yet mm -hmm. they were there for for forty years. And it's it's the same thing. Like there's no sense of connection to to the space. They're not really Taiwanese. There's no there's no real home for these right. characters. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. just a, a, a rootlessness. Yeah, and I think I was thinking about the way that the visual um, style of the film really kind of highlights the sense of these characters kind of moving within a, a landscape or within a kind of a set of buildings that they don't really belong to. And I think the, the kind of um, concentration of long shots that he, he uses and then um, the use of, of doors and windows as, as framing that kind of often will obscure the, the characters or part of the characters. Um, and then also there are these Oftentimes you will see an exterior of a building and you will see the, the characters kind of moving uh, up and down within it or through windows. But it's, it's as if they're kind of figures in a, a dollhouse. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's a little bit like um, I don't, Tati's Playtime or something like that, where these characters are kind of in this alien uh, landscape and they're just, again, figures moving in and, and about it, but they don't really necessarily seem to belong to it. Yeah, a lot of the a lot of the architecture in Taipei is is Japanese mm. at this time because because Japan had occupied the country for for fifty years and and one of the characters actually remarks that we fought a war against the Japanese for for eight years and now we're living in a Japanese house. Yeah, and so all of these spaces, like the the homes, have these Japanese screens and and all of the the spaces are have like those really sharp right angles and. Uh, and squares and rectangles that you know from like Ozu films, and and uh, Yang really shows those off. And 
repeatedly he'll have characters kind of walk into a room like they don't really know what they are, where they are. They yeah. seem to be just kind of drifting into the space and it mm-hmm. takes them a while to orient themselves and figure out where they are before they like take their next action. Yeah. Like, uh, the, the girl Ming is like constantly drifting through these spaces. Like she walks into like her doctor's office and she stands there for a beat or two before she turns around and like figures out who she's going to talk to or where she's going to go next. Mm-hmm. Like they, yeah. all, they always feel very disconnected from, from their environments. Yeah, absolutely. And then even, even the family home too is, is this very kind of tight space where they're really, it really isn't enough room for the entire family. I yeah. mean, they have one Same. tiny bathroom and then the two brothers have to share this closet yeah. as a bedroom. <laughs> um, and they're kind of, they're both, it's like both like a prison. Um, although he does kind of escape there at, at some points too, but as you say, it's not really his space. It's just kind of a place to be. Yeah. Um, in a way. Yeah, and this, the the spaces that are supposedly there become become scenes of violence. Like the gang mm. has an ice cream parlor, but yeah. because of like the the criminal activities, it, it's always abandoned and it's always empty. Or they have a, a concert hall that they, where they put on their concert, but then they get kicked out of it because again of, of violence. And there's like another uh, the rival gangs like headquarters, like the power is always going out and then there's like a bloody massacre mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. So there, there aren't any safe spaces. Yeah. Even the, the rich kid takes him to a tennis court and the tennis court is it's at night and it's always filled with like dark shadowy spaces <laughs> where mm-hmm. they, where they take girls and mm-hmm. you know, try to get to first base. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a real, there's a really interesting play of kind of light, light and shadow and the, the electricity constantly going out, does really highlight that sense that they are in this environment they can never really depend on um that that sometimes the power will be on but sometimes it won't and then it will it will go it will go out go go off and and the 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 play of um light and and shadow does i think it 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 seems in some sense to be evocative of their kind of psychological space as well where it's just they themselves don't really have an anchor is sometimes certain things are illuminated and then sometimes they're completely in the dark. Um, or even when something seems to be illuminated or you can see it, there's um, a great use of the object of the, the flashlight throughout mm, the film. Definitely. Um, and the way that, um, the, the flashlight will light up certain things and seem to give you information about who someone is or who something is, but actually it's a misinterpretation. It's not the right information. Um, and so it both, illuminates and also obscures at the same time so you can't even really trust the light um itself yeah i mean that the houses the houses even hide weapons yeah exactly (laughs) they find find like a samurai sword and like the knife that ends up being like the 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 final like uh murder weapon is Mm -hmm. is found in a house and that the flashlight is is so important, especially in the in the first half of them like uh uh, cheng chen finds it like right away he steals it from Almost the first scene, yeah, from the, the film set. So from the film set. And then he uses it throughout. He, like, he uses it in his room to, to read, but just he carries it with him all the time. Like, he packs it into his belt, and, but he mm-hmm. loses it by, by the end. He doesn't have it anymore. He replaces it with a knife, which, keeps, which yeah. he keeps trying to put in his pants, and it falls out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not working for him. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so, it's so sad. And he's... He's so good. He's he's what he's what fourteen years old. Yeah, he's amazing. 
Yeah. He's so good. He's really, he, um, did you, there's an interview with him on the Criterion disc. Did you listen to that or no, watch that at no, all? I, no, I didn't. I didn't watch um, any of the is, special features. It is really interesting because he says that, um, I mean, he hadn't done any acting really to speak of before that film. Um, he said that the, the whole tenor of that particular character, he kind of took on the, the persona of um, Chao Sir, and who is kind of a very um, impassive character in many ways, and also um, a, a seeming kind of calm and emotionless, even though there's a lot going beneath the surface. And he said that he kind of took on a lot of those qualities in his own life um, um, after playing that, that character. So I, I just think that speaks to how much he was immersed in the, in the character um, himself. Yeah, it's, he's great. I love I love uh, his his friend, the little kid, Cat. Uh, Cat, oh yeah, he's the he's, he's so great. great. He's the one who sings Elvis in in like a, his like falsetto. Well, it's not really falsetto because his voice hasn't really changed yet. But. Right, right. I know, and that's oh, that's something else I was thinking about. With he, I mean, he so identifies with Elvis, and he loves singing um, that song in that way. But I think be because he's singing in his voice that hasn't changed yet, you know that there's an inevitable point when he cannot identify with that voice anymore. He won't be able to to sing it. And yet he desperately, he, he's so in love with that whole identity. You can kind of see himself losing himself in the music when every time he sings. Um, and yet you, you know, inevitably it's going to, he won't be able to sing that anymore. Um, well, that's, that's dark. <laughs> it was like because he's he's like the only hopeful spot by the end of the film he is yeah, yeah and, it, and it gets like the kind of like the cynical twist when he when his like recording is thrown in the garbage but Ugh. but he doesn't know that no he doesn't i mean he's he's kind of a um irrepressible optimist yeah. in a way throughout the whole film there i mean there are a few times when he's kind of he he does uh stab this uh mannequin or um uh, yeah, with then, with but, a but knife, it, but, but it falls over on him. <laughs> <laughs> it hits him, and he's injured, and it's and you don't really even quite believe that violence. I guess it's it doesn't feel quite as dangerous as some of the other characters or something because he is such a um, he, he tries to make other people happy. He tries to kind of smooth smooth things over, yeah. um, and and he's he's such a loyal friend. Too, I think that there's a real sweetness there to the relationship that they have. Yeah, I think um, I think the the girl who plays Ming also is really terrific. Yeah, and did you know that her voice was dubbed, all dubbed? I did not. Um, apparently, she she grew up in the U.S. and so her accent wasn't right, huh. um, and so they had to redub everything, hmm. um, which um, the actor. Um, Cheng Shen said was pretty difficult yeah, <laughs> to do. Uh, and then, uh, like uh, uh, Cheng Shen's father, like like I said, is, yeah. is terrific. And and Elaine Jin, who is in, I think she's in like all of Edward Yang's films, and and she's great. They're uh, both fantastic, and they're only a couple of the two professional actors. There right. are many non-professional actors with the kids, right? Uh, yeah, the the one. The one, the one kid, other than those main ones that really stood out to me, is the the kid who plays Honey. And oh yeah, he, he's mm -hmm. only got like two or three scenes, but yeah, he and it's it's essential because for the the first two hours of the film, everyone is talking about that character, <laughs> yeah. and he's mm -hmm. off screen. It's like the the old Orson Welles story about Mister Wu. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 
Uh, so when he comes on screen, he better be good. And, and he is like, he really pulls off like the, the mystery and the, the maturity and the, uh, the, uh, kind of apathy of that character that makes him so cool and such an, an idealized figure to these younger kids. Right. Exactly. And someone who, um, Jao Sir really kind of holds them up in a hero status in a way. But as you say, he completely pulls it off. And there's like the great moment when everybody is kind of gathered in the ice cream parlor and then he makes this appearance and it's like this hero kind of coming home and he's just moving slowly through the crowd yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah he's like you're like he's just a kid yeah. <laughs> in he, a way and he, and he calls martial or uh war and peace a martial arts novel so yes <laughs> right <laughs> exactly well that that is the war and peace is the other kind of analog if you're thinking about maybe a specific novel like russian novels would be a, a good i think uh, analogy to this to yeah this, film. I, I, this feels more more dostoevskian to me it does than, than yes Tolstoy. with the psychological depth yes mm -hmm. I but, agree. Uh, but yeah there's yeah so another thing i was thinking about is just objects as the centers of focus for our sense of the world really and centers of emotional uh resonance and they're not symbols exactly i don't think because they're more complex than that but they're really visual cues that help us put the world together i think and see the relationships and structure and the psychological impact of the various um, relationships. So one of the key objects that is repeated throughout the film is the radio, mm -hmm. which um, kind of acts as a center of, I think, various um, elements of, of, the, of the film or relationship with the film. So it, in some sense, it represents the old life um, of the parents and kind of an older generation. There's a reference, especially later in the film, to it being kind of an old oh you still have this old radio um and it only works kind of spottily um, especially after the boys try to use it for their own kind of purposes yeah, so it cat, it cat disassembles it yeah <laughs> right because he wants to try to fix his recording device right yeah. um his, so in his, some his sense record player yes yeah his record player so in some sense the the younger generation in that case is dismantling perhaps the the radio um and it also functions to in the film um in a way because in the, in the beginning near the beginning of the film it reads out the the students who have um passed or are graduating um and um Jouser's name is not listed there so that's one of the the, the key conflicts of the film um, and the tension of the film that he is not um, making it in a way in the education and then in the film the the names are listed again on the radio and it just suddenly starts working um, and of course then it's this this heartbreaking moment where he definitely is not going to be getting this education yeah. and, the, and he's not gonna you know fulfill the hopes that his parents had had for for him um, so the radio it was one um and then another kind of object is the watch the mother's watch which becomes something that the various family members want for various reasons and it becomes a kind of a source of conflict but it is also a symbol of the old life i guess in china and a symbol of maybe better things or more wealth 
Um, and, and it's kind of constantly in jeopardy um, throughout, throughout the, the film. And so that seems to relate to both to identity and also the complexity of the relationships among the, the family members. Um, so that's another, another object um, that I thought was interesting, as well as the other objects of violence in the film. The yeah. bats... The, the basketball, bats, the, the mm -hmm. samurai swords, the, mm -hmm. the, the basketball in particular seems uh, yes. a very uh, Western thing mm -hmm. that, that could go either way. It could be, uh, it could be a positive, but it, it, it gets used for, for violence. Yeah, exactly. And the bat, bat is the same way. I mean, they're both kind of objects of play and yet mm -hmm. for the boys, they become perhaps more objects of, of violence or for violence. Yeah, and, um, and in a lot of ways, the basketball kicks off the whole the whole drama because one of the boys is playing with Ming and yes, and is uh, is too violent with her and she gets injured and that sets off a whole kind of domino effect of everything that leads to to what happens at the end. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I love his use of that. And then every time you see kind of one of those objects again, there's, it, it suddenly kind of, again, it just becomes a, a focal point and um, a way to maybe help you access the world and a get a sense of the structure of, of the world in, you know, in a film that is quite sprawling in some ways. Yeah. It's, it's so good. <laughs> it's it it really movie. is. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah, I watched it just the once, and then I, I I started watching it again, and I just wanted to watch the entire thing again. I didn't I didn't have time to, but I just thought I could just sit here for four hours again and watch this entire thing. Yeah, I had I had because I I, I don't have four consecutive hours where I am awake and mm -hmm. don't have children yes. falling around me. I, I had to split it up into multiple viewings, but I I really think the ideal way to see this would be in a theater in one sitting yeah. so yeah. you can just kind of take in the totality of it all at once like it, it plays just fine broken up but uh yeah just i think it would be overwhelming in a theater oh it would be amazing i know do you know of any screenings in uh, our area at all yeah I... this this restoration has been touring for quite a while i know it played in vancouver last year oh right that's right yep um mm -hmm. as far as i know there are no plans to bring it to seattle yeah because you know life. yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah but, i don't i don't know how much control the indie theaters have over that but i did put a bug in the ear of the program manager here at the pickford just to see if that's in any way a possibility to yeah. bring it to bellingham yeah, it's it's definitely out there. Like the it was it was restored by the Martin Scorsese's World Cinema Foundation in 2012, 2013 and that has been touring for quite mm -hmm. a while. Mm -hmm. And uh a lot of Yang's films are 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 very difficult to find. This is only I think the second one to get an official release in the okay. US. Wow. After mm -hmm. after Yi Yi. Yi Yi. Mm -hmm. Which uh which is also a great film. Uh, yeah, but his uh, his equally good films like uh, uh, Mahjong and The Terrorizers and Taipei Story, which I have only seen in like a really really bad VHS copy, um, mm -hmm. are are really terrific as well. And hopefully, if if this one if this one sells well, if Criterion makes money on that, that then we'll see other Edward Yang releases because he was he was a terrific director and he went to college in Seattle. 
Did he? I yeah. didn't know that. He studied engineering at the University of Washington. Oh, wow. That, that would be amazing. Yeah. And he is part of the whole, is it called New, Ty- New Taiwanese Cinema uh, yeah. movement that was kind of started in the, the 80s with Sylvia Chang and Ho Shao Shen? And, uh, well, so, and, Sylvia Chang or... was working in, in Hong Kong. Oh, she was? And she okay. Kind of, and she predates that. But, but Ho Shao okay. Shen and, and Edward Yang and, and some other directors, <laughs> that they're the two key figures that are, that are known outside of, of Taiwan now. And... Okay. And uh, uh, Ho actually stars in in Taipei Story. Uh, they were they were very good friends. They would actually get mm-hmm. the the various uh, filmmakers, writers, directors would would gather in Edward Yang's house and just kind of hang mm-hmm. out in mm-hmm. in the early eighties. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it would have been a pretty tight community, right? That was when kind of the um, restrictions were first being lifted. Um, and, um, yeah, in the, terms of the cinema, the military in dictatorship came to an end. I think in eighty, in nineteen eighty-seven, eighty-eight, because uh, Ho Shao Shen's uh, City of Sadness is, was, the, I think, the first film to deal with uh, the kind of nationalist crackdown on suspected former communists uh, in the early nineteen fifties, uh, okay. because that was a a taboo subject during. Mm during the, uh, the dictatorship. Sure. Uh, and then a, a brighter summer days, uh, film films like this that are more, more social realist are the kind of things that you would not expect a military dictatorship to be allowing. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, this, this yeah. is great. And, and, you know, as little as Ho Shao Shen is known in the U S Edward Yang is even less known and that should not be the case because no, he's, he's just as good. He is. Yes. I agree. <laughs> if if less prolific. Yeah. But yeah, if you have a chance to see any of his other films in whatever form you can find them, I recommend it. I will definitely try to do it. I have the Madong one that, whatever, I couldn't get it to work, but I'm definitely going <laughs> to try to make that one work. <laughs> Madong is really terrific. It has another great performance from, from Chang Chen in it. Okay. So. Okay, he's in that one also. Yeah. And that was after Brighter Summer Day then? Yeah, that, that's from 1996. Okay. So he's more more grown up then. Yeah. All right, so I think that is, uh, that is that for A Brighter Summer Day. We could talk about this film, I think, for a very, very long time. There's uh, so much to dive into, yeah. yeah. But if we don't want the show to be as long as A Brighter Summer Day, we should move on. <laughs> Why not? Uh, coming up, we're going to talk about about Prince, and so here is a clip from a Prince movie. Prince in his first motion picture. Before he created the music, he lived every bit of it. Story. That's so crazy. 
the struggle. The movie. Purple Rain. Alright, so I mean, on the George Sanders show, we, we often uh, would make use of, of popular music that we liked that we did not have the rights to. And one time we actually uh, had a, a joke about how all of the songs for the episode were going to be Prince songs, but then we would play uh, like some other music instead uh, with the, the theory that uh, Prince had complained about our podcast and forced us to change the music. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I mean, obviously he did not because Prince never listened to the George Sanders show. <laughs> what? <laughs> Although he would have loved it. I'm sure. I'm sure he would have been very supportive. <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, you know, in, in, in such a case as this, this would have been the kind of episode where we would play a whole bunch of Prince music. And I don't want to do that because Prince would not have wanted that. That would have and made him sad or angry yes. <laughs> right. so that was you know just a a you know a clip from purple rain and as everybody who is listening to this knows uh prince died last week uh, very suddenly and very surprisingly and very sadly and like everybody else apparently in the world i've been mm. really sad about prince <laughs> uh how about you well, that is an interesting question. This is probably the worst episode for me to come on in some ways. Um, and you really miss Mike because he's the music guy. <laughs> um, I I grew up in a conservative Christian household in which secular culture or popular culture, anything that was edgy or was... was essentially morally decadent there was a there's a piece in the washington post um um entitled prince helped me overcome my religious upbringing that shunned secular music by bethany allen Ebrahamin. and um that her description of her interaction with prince's death very much does mirror mine in some ways um in, in part because i have very little relationship to to prince um so i thought um, I couldn't, like when he died, I couldn't recall his voice, like the sound of his voice. I knew there was Purple Rain and I knew I must know some other songs, but I couldn't, we couldn't think of them. Um, but then as I began to kind of dig, I realized like, no, I, I do know all these songs. And somehow I escaped <laughs> whatever control um, that my parents thought they had. And I, whether it was on MTV, which I know I loved to watch when, um, or just in the downtown stores in Bellingham before the mall came when they played cool music. Um, I realized, no, I, I know all of the, the major songs and even something like, like Raspberry Beret was like a song that I thought I want to be that person in that song <laughs> who I, who kind of evoked a sort of Molly Ringwald and pretty in pink figure. Um, for me, sure. someone who's kind of on the fringes of society, but totally cool. And I wanted to be that that person so I think it was kind of this weird thing where I thought I don't really have a relationship with this but then kind of the further back I dug I realized like no I, this this was something that was kind of essential in some ways but um not something that maybe perhaps I was as 
conscious of as as many other people had. But it, it did make me kind of sad because so many people have this intensely personal relationship, it seems, to to Prince that he in so um, such an uh, way really kind of affected their sense of their their identity and their even kind of I don't know their their sense of connection to I guess themselves and their world um, and I don't think I really had that um did you have that I mean was Prince like an important figure for you in I your mean, kind of in in that sense uh David Bowie was more so yeah like a figure in my life like I Prince is somebody that was like always there and one of sure. the one of the first music videos I ever saw when I was I must have been like eight years old was When Doves Cry and uh-huh. it scared me <laughs> yeah for uh-huh. for a lot of reasons I think. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, and that was uh kind of my relationship with prince like throughout my childhood and and, uh-huh. and growing up was i i always liked him i was always interested but i was always yeah. a little scared yeah uh and that kind of uh, it kind of uh, kept me from from really like diving in to his work like i yeah. i didn't I didn't own a, a Prince album until I was in my thirties. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've like since come to, to really like and, and really admire him. And I've been saying for years how I need to just get a bunch of Prince albums and listen to, yeah. to all of Prince because there's so many, he recorded like yeah. 40 different albums. Uh, yeah. But uh, it always seemed like such a big task that I never got around to doing it. So I just had, yeah. I like I had Purple Rain, I had Sign of the Times, and I had 1999. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I love Prince, and I would watch Prince whenever he was available. Like uh, the, the Super Bowl halftime show oh, was sure. uh-huh. like, the, like the best Super Bowl moment of that decade. Yeah. Um, you know, until the Seahawks won the Super Bowl. Uh, <laughs> Prince at the Super Bowl would be the second best Super Bowl moment ever. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, and I I didn't even I didn't even see the Purple Rain movie until okay. we we played it at mm-hmm. my theater. We did like mm-hmm. a, a series of music movies, and uh, and that it was actually the first one that we played that I hadn't seen first. But Mike mm-hmm. is like, we should play Purple Rain. It's it's great. So yeah, and yeah. I watched it, and and Purple Rain is great. Yeah. Uh, so you you actually watched that? Was it the first time you'd seen it, or no? Well, that is one of those weird things again from my youth, where I did see Purple Rain when I was probably twelve, <laughs> which was way too young to see that um, movie, and I had very little memory of it except that. It, to me, it kind of reinforces this idea of Prince, kind of like you, as this sort of dangerous figure. And yet, there was something extremely attractive about it too, because he is has this combination of sensuality and dangerousness, which I, which I couldn't really articulate. I think when I was was twelve, um, in any sense of the word. But I did see that movie when I was was that old, and kind of various images kind of seared on my mind. So I was very curious to revisit it because I hadn't revisited it until we were just going to talk about it now this week um so yeah young impressionable melissa brain kind of (laughs) these these images but but that's that's about it yeah i i i watched it again and uh the the first time i saw it i'm like 
I was like, you know, all of like the drama stuff and the acting is bad, but the music is great. And this time I'm like, the whole thing is great. (laughs) And I don't know if it's, if it's that I, my understanding of what is good and bad in acting has Mm -hmm. changed in the last Mm -hmm. five years, or Mm -hmm. if, uh, if there's something about, about, about Prince that kind of transcends acting as we know it. Yeah. Uh, and I'm I'm not sure what that is. Like I, I I do think that I don't know what acting is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so movies movies like this make me question uh, that we should even talk about it. Yeah, that that was something I was thinking about too. Because kind of in the classical sense, you might say this movie has terrible acting, um, and yet. Yeah, yeah, what do we mean by that? I mean, he's an amazing performer. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, and I don't know what the line between that is. And also, as you say, what, what is, what makes ac- terrible acting? I mean, in, because in some sense, that the final scenes where you get to work, not just because of the music, but because of the story and the acting that has come before it. And it was, it's an incredibly moving, like Purple Rain, I was like, crying weeping at the end of it and it and it wasn't just because it's an amazing song it was because of all of the story and the acting yeah, <laughs> that, be- that came before it like yeah. uh uh the the best example i can think of to explain this is is morris day and jerome benton who yeah. are the the antagonists <laughs> for the film yeah and at one point it's like half hour into the movie the two of them uh, engage in like a variation on the who's on first Abbott <laughs> yes. and Costello routine. And yes. they are neither of them what you would call good actors. They do not no. have like the comic sensibilities of Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. Yes. But the scene with them is so fun. And it's <laughs> yeah. it's not that you're laughing at them because, oh, look at these two terrible actors trying to do a comedy routine. It's because there's something like infectious about them and their personalities on screen that even mm-hmm. though you know it's not as like technically skillful a comic performance mm-hmm. it's it's still fun to watch and and is there a difference between the two and i don't know that there is and then you know the best moment of acting in the in the film comes near the end and it's morris day uh yeah. when he uh when Prince is about to go on stage for uh, uh, to sing Purple Rain, and and Morris comes in and, and taunts him about his father attempting to kill himself, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and uh, he gets out into the hall, and and Morris like realizes that he's like gone too far in his taunting of Prince, and yeah. it's entirely just in this look that Morris Day gives off mm-hmm. camera, and mm-hmm. it's like actual subtle movie acting acting, yeah. Uh, yeah. And there, I think there are those moments like that that come with the kind of what you might call staginess or around some of the, the other uh, performances. There are those moments of kind of sheer truthfulness that just feels like, well, that that is that character then. And, and that's a moment that that feels like it's yeah. whatever whatever real means in terms of drama and acting it's real yeah well it, it makes me wonder if all of the other scenes with 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 morris and jerome are 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 intentionally over the top mm. theatrical performances mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. if he is intentionally being a bad bad at acting 
because mm-hmm. his character is bad at acting and he is acting yeah, in all of his life. Mm-hmm. And it's if that's the same thing with, with Prince, like the awkward line readings are come when he is being fake with mm-hmm. the people around him, not mm-hmm. when he's like, when he's actually being real is when he's on stage, either, either for, for good, like in right. uh, uh, Purple Rain, or when he's like just being cruel and nasty, like in the, in the Darling Nikki scene. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and yeah, it does seem like there is a lot of play um, in the film with the idea of, of masks coming on and off. I mean, there's that kind of great little scene when he's um, backstage and he's playing with the, the puppet and he's mm-hmm. doing the kind of ventriloquism. And, and, you're, and there is this odd line between how much then of his life is he kind of play acting something. Yeah. Um, and, and, and yeah, and, and then I think the other well, characters everything do that about too. His, everything about his persona is so constructed from the, the clothes yes. and the hair and the yes. motorcycle. And right. There's like, you're, you're like looking for the real prince. Yeah. And, and in the little moments when he's kind of like, he's trying to be playful when he grabs the, he won't give back the bracelet or the anklet thing right. from Apollonia. And, and you're like, you're not, it's not really playful, but is it just because he doesn't know how to be playful? He's trying to put on this playfulness that doesn't quite know how to do or something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. And then, but, and the, the, the final like, like twist then is, is when he does, you know, finally realize that he needs to get along with other people and he needs to collaborate and, and yeah. you know, be an, an open artist as opposed to like closed off and, and within himself is supposedly he's going to uh, work with Wendy and Lisa to write mm-hmm. the Purple Rain song. And and that's like the final statement of, of the open Prince, the like the mm-hmm. new Prince. But in actuality, Prince wrote that song. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> So, you know, even like uh, the the most real prince is still an artifice. In some sense, an artifice. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and you never quite know where the where the lines are. Yeah. Um, and, and they're all those kind of great shots just of the backstage quarters and the kind of the, the mirrors and the dressing room and even just traveling up the, on the roads in the city or out into the country. It just seems like there, there's these winding paths Um that you never quite know where I don't know where the the private life or the the performed life. Oh yeah, meets. and and his his room in his his parents' little house, and he lives in mm-hmm. the basement, and mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's fantastic. and it's a it's a big basement too because like his father has a space big. in the basement, and and he has his own space, and yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> the house is an odd space generally. Um, yeah, and Speaking. that backstage dressing room that 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 the revolution like occupies with all of those like knickknacks and oh yeah, and costumes it's great. and everything. It's 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 fantastic. It's, it's really great. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, uh, is that do you have more on Prince? Or no, I, I just wanted to recommend. I don't know if you saw. Um, Adrian Martin has like six little essays, kind mm-hmm. of reflecting on Purple Rain and. Um, they're all really great, but there is one in which he kind of reflects on kind of the, the, the weird and wonderful world of the B movie, as he calls it, um, and why it is kind of so great and kind of gets at maybe something that other movies can't necessarily because of this, what seem like certain discrepancies and, um, and, and sudden intensities or, um, 
within the within the within the film. Um, so anyway, I would just recommend those those six essays and that that one in particular. Right on. It's great. We will we will put a link for that in the uh, the post for the show. Nice. Uh, so yeah, uh, Purple Rain. Uh, like as soon as as Prince died, like the wheels started spinning in exhibitors around the country, and and they brought it back to theaters, and it is still playing. It's like playing all over Seattle this week. But yes. uh, there is other stuff coming coming soon. So what? Uh, uh, you don't live in Seattle. You live in Bellingham. I don't live in Seattle. Is yes. There, <laughs> is there anything of interest coming to Bellingham in the next uh, few weeks? Well, yes. Um, there is Prince all this weekend. Um, but also coming up in a couple of weeks is a movie that I am have been looking forward to ever since. I think I heard about it coming out at Sundance, but it's um, the new Terrence Davies film, uh, Sunset Song. Oh, yeah. You heard about that one? It's, um, yeah, it's opening in a few weeks. I, I haven't actually seen a lot of um, Davies I think what maybe people think of as more his, his signature films, Distant Voices, Still Lives, The Time in the City, The Long Day Closes. But I have seen and I have loved um, the two that I've seen, which are Date Blue Sea and, and The House of Mirth. And this film is apparently similar to those in the sense that um, it's uh, is an adaptation, um, kind of like House of Mirth. Um, but it it sounds like it's going to tap into exactly the things that I I really loved about Deep Blue Sea and, and the House of Mirth, where it visually it's it's stunning, but it really gets at this kind of emotional um, experience um, of the characters. And this film is based on a 1932 novel by the Scottish writer um, Lewis Grassic Gibbon, which I have not read the book, but that also it also sounds um, fantastic. But I love Daisy's Davies um, just themes of emotional endurance and um, the, the influence of memory on, on everyday life that he um, teases out kind of in the, in the various day-to-day kind of um, life of, of his characters. And it kind of leave his films, um, I think, in, in kind of an, in a deep sort of emotional state. And they're often quite heartbreaking and, and heart-wrenching, but in, in such a way that feels, I think, cathartic, but it also... I think creeps up on you. Um, so that is the one I'm most looking forward to um, in the coming weeks. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to when when that opens in Seattle too. It has not been announced yet for any Seattle theaters as far as I know. Uh, okay. But I am in the same boat with you on Davies. I have loved those two movies and I haven't seen the other earlier, more acclaimed too. So oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, House of Mirth is... is is fantastic and uh, oh, yeah. deep see. Yeah. Uh, coming up here in Seattle, uh, the, the Grand Illusion and Northwest Film Forum uh, are still their Sage and Suzuki series, which we talked about uh, an episode or two ago. I can't remember. Uh, that's still going on through, through May 11th. Uh, but uh, starting next week, they are doing another collaboration and this is their prevent, presenting uh, films from the UCLA Festival of Preservation. Hmm. And these are uh, restored films, uh, 35 millimeter prints of kind of obscure uh, Hollywood movies. And uh, I'm not sure exactly what's playing at the Grand Illusion, but the Film Forum has a list of what they're playing up. And they're starting with a, a silent film, a Mary Pickford film, starts on May. Uh, uh, all the films are playing on Fridays, Friday only. So. 
Uh, there's Mary Pickford film on May 6th that's also playing with a D.W. Griffith short. Uh, and then they've got uh, Spring Night, Summer Night from 1967, which I don't know anything about. Yeah. Uh, and then they have the next two films on May 20th and 27th are Anthony Mann's Men in War, which is a Korean War film that is really uh, very good. It's like on a par with his like James Stewart psychological westerns, except it's a war movie. And then uh, uh, the last one is John Ford's The Long Voyage Home, which is uh, one of Ford's strangest films. It's an adaptation of uh, uh, several Eugene O'Neill like short plays, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, all centered on this this boat that's going home, like right at the start of World War II. It's got John Wayne with a very uh, uh, thick but apparently accurate Swedish accent and it's <laughs> it's all shot with like in like these really like deep expressionist shadows with I think uh, I think Greg Toland uh, from Susan Kane was the cinematographer on it and it's a uh, it's a very unusual Ford film but it's it's really good uh, so those are all playing on 35 millimeter on Fridays in May at the Northwest Film Forum so that sounds fantastic yeah that is definitely something to look out for uh, and another thing that you want to look out for as you go about your life is uh, violent youth. Because, <laughs> nice segue. <laughs> yeah, thank you. The the kids can be scary. They uh, are scary. Uh, Brighter Summer Day. Brighter Summer Day, of course, is about a violent youth, and uh, it is tempting to pick it as the essential violent youth movie. But that would be mm -hmm. cheating. You have to pick something else. <laughs> something so, new. Yes. What is your essential violent youth film? All right. Well, there are so many great ones um, that are kind of best best ever type movies like Badlands or Clockwork Orange or something like that. Um, but I decided to choose one that is, I think, still an amazing, um, amazing film, but maybe perhaps um, less well known than those two. And it is the 1996 or 95, I think, French film La Haine by Matteo Kazovich. Have you seen this one? I have not. Okay, so La Haine is um, translated to hate, so goes nicely with the, the violent youth um, films. Um, and it's similar to something like A Brighter Summer's Summer Day, in which it's a story that follows a group of characters that are essentially out of place um, in their own country, in part because they're not a, a part of the main stream um, culture. But the lo location of the film is its interracial housing project uh, near Paris. And an Arab boy has been um, beaten by the cops during a riot. Um, and then the film follows uh, a friend of his, uh, who's kind of a hot-headed um, Jewish kid who is furious about the, the, the beating. Um, and he is he's kind of itching to erupt in, into action in part because he is has no sense of really purpose or, or place. Um, and he comes across a, a police gun during the violence. And so the film takes place over a 24 hour period. And it's um, Vince and a couple of his friends that he's going around with. One is another um, Arab kid. And then one is an F West African kid who is also kind of a small time drug dealer, but he's trying to go straight. Um, and become a boxer. So the the film really kind of taps into these three characters who really don't have a sense of of place or purpose. They're they live in the projects. They're not typical French kids. Um, but it's also the intersection between 
um, kind of a, a violent society around them or a society around them that maybe has put them into the category of being violent because they are youthful and because they don't quite fit in. And so they're in some sense playing into that, I guess, stereotype or, or forced into that stereotype. But um, the, the whole film is really a, a quite an intense experience um, in, in the in a much more compacted way than brighter summer summer day, but there's an undercurrent of feeling of of confusion um, and and hatred uh, kind of running beneath the surface, and you never quite know what this main character is going to do with this gun that he's picked up in the beginning of the film. So that is Lahaine, and it's and it's shot in a, a black and white uh, kind of a cinema verite style, which is really effective for the film. And the, the film doesn't necessarily go to a place where you don't expect it to, to go, but I think it's effective because of the way that the tension builds throughout the entire film. Oh, and it's, um, I should say it's Vincent Cassell in the, in the lead in this film, right which, on. yes. <laughs> I, 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 I remember that film. I think, I think Criterion has put it out. Yes. They have a, uh, there's a Criterion. Um, version of it yeah but I I never I never got around to seeing it when I when I was taking French my French teacher recommended it highly yeah, <laughs> yeah but that it's was, great you know, yeah and there's an interesting um, there's an intersection between kind of pop culture too and also the the American culture that they're trying to kind of trying to imitate what they think of as kind of black black culture in the U.S. and yet they don't they don't quite know how to do it um, very well. So there's an interesting overlap then with a uh, brighter summer day in that regard. Right on. Uh, my pick, I, I was tempted to just go with, uh, with rebel without a cause here yes. because you know, that film is, is famous, but it's, uh, it's like more famous than it is recognized as actually being a great movie. And it's a mm. really, really great movie. Um, but I'm going to go uh, on the obscure side with, uh, Choi Hark's Dangerous Encounters First Kind, which is from 1980. It was Choi Hark's third film. And to me, it's kind of the, it's the film that, that kind of unlocked Choi Hark to me and then made me kind of realize what exactly he was getting after with all of his later films that are much more mainstream and more palatable genre films. Uh, Dangerous Encounters is about uh, this this trio of teenagers growing up in in Hong Kong in, in the in like these horrible slums, uh, and they are just nihilistically violent. There's like two boys that are engaging in like uh, uh, street crime. They're like uh, I think they put bombs in like movie theaters, so, like little like tiny bombs go off inside movie theaters, and they meet a girl who is like truly psychotic. Like she like tortures mm -hmm. animals in her house. And her brother is, uh, is Lolier, who is, uh, one of the, uh, one of the, uh, uh, star of Shaw brothers films in the 1970s. And he's a cop mm -hmm. and the three of them get caught up in, uh, uh, this, uh, 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 kind of criminal war with, uh, with a gang and, uh, some Americans who are worse than all of the, mm -hmm. like, the Hong Kong people. So it's just this, uh, it's just this like dense tapestry of violence and nihilism and it's, it's mm. horrifying, but it's, uh, it's all kind of grounded in this sophisticated understanding of generational politics of Hong Kong in the same way that a brighter summer day is reflecting 
what it's like to grow up in exile in Taiwan in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, Choi Hark's film is, is, and a lot of the films from the Hong Kong New Wave, of which this is like one of the, uh, the, the most important works, are about this generation that's grown up in exile in Hong Kong. Mm. Uh, in exile from China for mm-hmm. for much the same reason that 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 the Taiwanese were in exile, mm-hmm. and it's it's just this this punk anarchist attitude that that Choi Hark has in this film. This is like the the purest expression of it, and it gets softer in the later films. But there's still a hard edge of of outrage and anger in his later films, no matter how mm. how populous they ultimately are. Mm-hmm. There's still an anti-authoritarian streak in Choi Hark. And I think like keying into that and seeing this film is what made his later films make sense to me. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, It is, uh, it was uh, heavily censored on its release. Uh, It's still, I don't think available in its proper form. Actually, when I watched it three years ago, I found it on YouTube and somebody had taken like the censored version of it and spliced in scenes, the scenes that had been cut out from a uh, uh, from a, a, like a, a VHS version of the original film. Oh, really? <laughs> so there, oh, wow. there are like these like dramatic shifts in video quality, and uh-huh. it, it it has this feeling like like a film, like a truly underground film, like something that has to be pieced together and you have to to seek out. And it's it kind of adds to the charm of the film, like it, like it is like a dangerous film. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. So I and I, it I hasn't reckon... been ever restored or like kind no, of put not together. As far, in. Not as far as I know. And okay. So yeah, I, I I recommended seeking it out through subterranean means because <laughs> it's a subterranean film. Dive into the world of the film. Bye. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> that sounds great. All right. So. Uh, uh, speaking of Hong Kong, <laughs> <laughs> another nice segue. Good job. <laughs> uh, our our second film tonight is uh, uh, SPL Two: uh, Time for Consequences, and this now here is a clip from that film.
right. So that was SBL2, uh, otherwise known as Kill Zone 2 in the, the bad American title um, by the director Soi Chang, who, um, Sean, you will know a great deal more about this than I, than I would, but he um, was apparently, he's worked with Johnny Toe quite a bit. Is that right? Johnny Toe is kind of a mentor um, uh, of, of his. Yeah, Soi, Soi Chang made a couple of films for Johnny Toe's Milky Way Image studio. He had made films before that, and he's made films outside of that but uh probably his best known films in the u.s are his milky way films uh accident and motorway both of which are very good okay Uh, and so this is kind of a a loose sequel to sbl the first one but that was a a different director um is that correct different director Um, yeah uh it is it is a sequel in name only it has right different characters yeah Right. But kind of similar themes. So I understand. Kind of. Kind of. Maybe. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> SPL means uh, uh, Sha Po Lang. And it has something to do with, with Chinese astrology. And there are like positions of stars that Wikipedia says uh, each represents a uh, star capable of good or evil, depending on their position in the heavens. Whatever okay. that means. Yeah. And that does kind of play out in, in this film in terms of the sort of intersection between what might be fate or what's driving these characters' destinies and their kind of their own their own desires. So um, kind of a, a loose description, I guess, of the of the plot. Um, there are uh, it's set in both Thailand and uh, Hong Kong. And it, it, the overplot is overall the plot is rather breathless and, and complex. But but essentially there is a crime ring uh, headed up by Mr. Hung, uh, played by Louis Go Go Goo. <laughs> You're gonna have to help me out with the names. Um, and he is um, this crime ring is working in human trafficking, specifically human organ uh, trafficking. And they're kind of going back and forth between um, Thailand and and Hong Kong in terms of the their um the organs that they are harvesting from hapless um targets um and there's another uh, circle of characters um the hong kong police um headed up by detective wa played by simon uh yam who's investigating the crime ring and along with that, um wu jing who's a police officer who goes undercover um to try to expose this crime ring. And then there's one other key character that we should uh, mention, um, Chai, played by Tony Jaw, who is a guard in the Thai prison, who kind of becomes connected to this um, crime ring. Um, but his, his key uh, story arc in the film is that he's concerned about his daughter, um, who has leukemia and urgently needs a bone marrow transplant so that kind of parallels the the human organ trafficking that's going on you have this very innocent character who needs this bone marrow transplant and then her father who desperately needs to try to help her in some way and that intersects then with the the police characters and then the crime the crime boss and and the various figures in that um and it is a martial arts film so in some way the plot doesn't necessarily matter that much i guess <laughs> although there are there are some really interesting themes i think and metaphors that are, that are also being played around with in this in the film yeah i think i think the film i mean it has it has levels uh yes it does like if you if you want if you want to just go to an action movie and watch really cool martial arts this this movie will satisfy 
you, mm -hmm. I think. Yes. And if you're also interested in themes and ideas and, and weird plot twists and interconnections between characters, then this film will also appeal to you. Uh, like it's, it's got a lot. I think, it's, <laughs> it I, think does. It, I think it, I think it's, uh, it's kind of a, a major Hong Kong film. It is great. I haven't, I have not watched that that much Hong Kong cinema as you as you know, but I I really loved this movie. I mean, this is this is as you said, it works on so many levels. It's so fun as an as a martial arts film in which you are. It's not the the quick cutting of the Hollywood type action film, but it's the the sort of you're seeing the action played out, and you're like these actor characters are amazing martial artists. They're not just you know, it's not just tricks of the camera, really. These are, it's amazing what they're doing. But, yeah. um, I mean, well, there's, uh, there are like digital effects added yes. to yes. it, but it's all, it's done in like the opposite of quick cutting. Like everything is, is made digitally seamless in that right, the, exactly. the, the camera just, just floats through the space. And there are like these long, incredible shots of the, like the camera going back and forth following, following the actors and, and the movements, which are, not necessarily realistic or real, but right. but fluid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so it's great on that level, on the action level. Um, but it is also really interesting in terms of the, I think the, the themes of connection and disconnection and sort of what drives the characters and um, what I think, what will what kind of compromises characters are willing perhaps to to go through in order to do something that they want to do, um, particularly to preserve their own life or to preserve the life of of another. And the the main criminal boss character, Mr. Hung, needs needs an organ plant transplant himself, which he wants to take from his brother. <laughs> he wants to take his brother's heart. So you have mm -hmm. that parallel with then the daughter of um, the, the guard who also needs an organ transplant. And then what will the guard go through? Kind of how will he compromise himself in order to save his, his daughter? So there's an interesting tension that's developed there between what these two very different characters are doing, but they both need kind of something similar, I guess. Yeah, and and uh, there there's a, a third level of that with the the two cops. With Simon Yan yes. has encouraged his nephew, who is Wu Jing, to be an undercover cop, and so he has put his relative in danger in order to get what he wants. And then Wu Jing himself has turned himself into a heroin addict for the sake of this mm -hmm. job. Mm -hmm. So he has he has he has like literally sacrificed his own well being for you know the the greater good supposedly or perhaps he has just you know succumbed to to you know a kind of nihilistic temptation of, of instant gratification right exactly and you're not and you're not i think we're kind of invited to question what where he's at in in that um continuum yeah how far his character is compromised yeah and there are there are so many like interrelationships especially with um with with these major characters, but there's also kind of the minor characters. Like uh, Tony Jaw has 
uh, an elderly prison guard who was the, the yes. guy who got him the job. That is like a, a friend of the family. I, I, I don't think he's a, he's an uncle, but he's an uncle type figure. Uh, and and even that figure is paralleled with uh, Louis Gu. One of his henchmen looks like that older prison guard and that he is is also bald and he's kind of like lurking behind the scenes but mm -hmm. he's like the evil uncle <laughs> mm -hmm, right exactly yeah which was very confusing for me because i don't recognize a lot of these actors <laughs> right. like, but watch i did kind of watch it again uh, or sort of skim through it a second time and then it became much clearer but but yeah the the i think the parallels are they're intentional yeah there. it's it's a really densely constructed plot that yes that in in you know in in hong kong style uh hinges on wild coincidences that would <laughs> yeah. like get you a, like a failing grade in a hollywood script writing course <laughs> exactly but but and, which is kind of like dickensian too i mean dickens loves these complex massive characters that suddenly all like, come together in the end well, I think I think I think to criticize this film for having like a plot built on coincidence is to entirely miss the point of yeah. the film, which yes. is which is an assertion that coincidences like that like this happen, and then if that is the case, then how do you how do you function in society? Like, what does this mean, like metaphysically, mm -hmm. about the universe? Mm -hmm. If like the one guy who can. Yeah. Uh, who matches your daughter's bone marrow happens to be the undercover cop who has been imprisoned in your prison. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. What do you do about that? What does that mean? And mm -hmm. uh, I think, I think this is like in, in keeping with, with, uh, with some of So Chang's other films. And it's also uh, very similar to a lot of, of Johnny Toe and Milky Way, Waikawai films, uh, Waikafai films, uh, that are similarly like absurd causally mm -hmm. from the Hollywood script writing point of view, but mm -hmm. uh, become really interesting, you know, exercises in trying to, to explain randomness and interconnection in the universe, like randomness and fate uh, yeah. are the, like the two principles I keep coming back to in Johnny Toe's films and accident in particular, I think is uh is a very interesting riff on that idea. Uh, mm -hmm. in, in that film, uh, Louis Gu plays a uh, uh, the leader of like a criminal gang, and what they do is they they uh, they commit murders, but they come up with like these complicated like Rube Goldberg systems that make the murders look like accidents. Okay, <laughs> and. Uh -huh. Uh, and because they do this, they believe that there are other people out there that make murders look like accidents. So whenever an accident, like an actual accident happens around them, they can't tell if it's real or not. Mm. They can't mm -hmm. tell what is a coincidence and what is a conspiracy. Mm -hmm. And it, it, in kind of like a, a, a riff on the conversation, uh, it, it drives Louis Good nuts as he mm -hmm. cannot tell the difference between, between randomness and fate. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's definitely that going on um, in this film. And then the question of where does kind of human endeavor and effort fit into that? Um, do you keep trying if, you know, you're still, your your life or those of the, the lives of those that you love in some sense still hinge on these various random things coming together or not coming yeah. together? And, and, and that's kind of where the the 
superhuman physical exertions of the mm-hmm. the two mm-hmm. the two uh, <laughs> leads uh, come into play is that they endure like incredible like physical punishments and mm-hmm. and yet keep fighting. Yes, exactly. And uh, like I, I'm, you know, you're not a you're not a martial arts movie fan. Uh, I, I assume this is like the first time you've seen Tony Jaa and and Wu Jing. I think so. Although, I I mean, I saw I've seen one Johnny Toe film, um, Drug War. Mm-hmm. Um, but and they they kind of looked familiar to me, but I don't know. So I feel like there must have been something else that I've seen. But yeah, I uh, Tony no. Tony Jaa is is Thai. Uh, okay. He kind of he broke out in about ten years ago with a film called Ong Bak, which is like a very low oh, yeah. budget uh, yep. mm-hmm. uh, martial arts film that was mm-hmm. followed by two kind of historical prequels uh, that are very like kind of CGI heavy. And he also mm-hmm. did a movie called The Protector, where he like travels to bon- Bangkok to rescue mm-hmm. uh, his elephant mm-hmm. who's been stolen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I, I, I swear Tony Jaa in, in SPL2 has more lines in this film than he had in all of his Thai films put together. Yeah, <laughs> like the, you know, he, he was pretty good, I thought. Yeah, this is the first time. This is the first time he actually acts in a movie. Uh Like before, he is Uh he is just like this, like you know, incredibly violent uh, dynamo uh, Mm -hmm. who is never allowed to speak. Like he's Uh like very monosyllabic. But here, like he's working in like an advanced uh, action cinema, like like Hong Kong system. Uh, Uh He's allowed to act, and he's really good. He's really good. And I mean, he has to kind of really bring it with, you know, these scenes with his daughter. Um, you know, there's a lot of deeply felt kind of e- emotion that he has to s- sort of um, bring to the table. Yeah. And, and Wu Jing kind of had a, a similar career path. Like in the first SPL film, he has a small role and I think he has no lines in, okay. in that film. He is like the... <laughs> the like lead assassin for for Samuel Hung's criminal gang and he like pops up and is just like this whirling swirl of death he like kills everybody and he mm-hmm. has like this amazing uh fight sequence with Donnie Yen that's mm-hmm. like the the peak of of Hong Kong action cinema in the 2000s mm. uh but uh he and that's mostly the kind of film that he, the the kind of roles that he's playing. He's he's a very quiet uh, action star okay. kind of guy. Uh, uh-huh. I haven't I haven't seen a lot of his other work. I think he's directed a film. I think he did uh, Wolf Warrior, okay. which I haven't seen. Uh-huh. Uh But uh, yeah, the, these two guys together are probably like the best uh, martial arts film performers of their generation. And, and they're so great. I mean, that final scene when they're in the the Lotus mm-hmm. Cub, when they're when they're they're kind of together facing off with the uh, the, main, the warden uh, Ko, I think it is. Yeah, uh, uh, um, Jang Jin is the yes. actor, and he, yes, he was actually uh, uh, in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. He was Jang Ziyi's. Uh, oh, that's double. right. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and he was also in the Grandmaster as well. Yeah, he's I he's think. one of the the rival masters in the Grandmaster. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, Hong Kong cinema, martial arts cinema, is still really dominated by the generation of actors who came, 
who came to prominence in like the 70s and the 80s, like like Sammo Hung and Donnie Yen are uh-huh. guys like in their 50s and 60s are still like the major stars. And there haven't been really been the charismatic stars to kind of fill in the gap after them. Okay. Uh, this this feels like like the first time that you see stars that could fill that gap. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they both. I mean, they both have the charisma for it. I mean, as far as I could tell from from this film, and like, I want to see them in more stuff. Yeah. Um, with with major roles like this, and this is this is one of those movies too that I'm like, I need to get more of this now. <laughs> <laughs> Where can I see more of this? And it also makes me think that you know, why do we have like this? This could appeal to such a broad audience i i think i mean you know you have so many people going to batman versus superman but this movie oh, it's so much that, better it's so much better obviously and like just like how could you not love that like any person even if you think you don't like a subtitled movie i mean this is great it's just um i just this could be a blockbuster why isn't it a blockbuster racism yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, I I really hate that it's being released in the US by by Wogo and I really hate that they have changed the title to to Killzone 2. Yeah. Um, and there's 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 literally no reason for that. Like the the first SPL was released in the US or on video in the US as Killzone. And that's kind of uh-huh. understandable because you know, American audiences aren't going to know what SPL means. And the shop home, right. that doesn't mean anything. Uh, so they give it like a generic action movie title. Right. That's fine. But, and this is SPL 2. Mm-hmm. But there's no connection between this and that. Like there's no reason to right. make it be Killzone 2. Like audiences right. here don't know Killzone. They don't care for Killzone 2. They're not going to go see it because it's Killzone 2. They right. might not go see it because it is called Killzone, Killzone 2. Killzone 2. And they're like, I haven't heard of the first one, so this one must be even worse. Yeah, or <laughs> right? I didn't see Killzone. How can I see Killzone <laughs> 2? Exactly. I mean, if they're going to rename it, they could have just dropped the SPL 2 and just gone with the subtitle for you know a time for consequences. Yeah, yeah. Which, That's a great title. Yeah. Or it's a good title. Sure, it's a title. Yeah, it's a title. <laughs> okay, it's not great. It'll work. It's better uh, than Killzone Two. Yeah, which <clears> is <throat> just utterly generic and gives no sense of what the actual movie movie is. Yeah, right. And I mean, I just think there's a space for this. I mean, my um, my husband Yuri, who he does like movies, but he's not in any sense of the word a cinephile. But he and his brother loved Jackie Chan movies, mm-hmm. and and we're talking like the you know the older Jackie Chan movies. Sure. Um, and I just think there is a space for that for you know that um, if there can be Jackie Chan um, fans, there can be you know fans of of this kind of this cinema as well yeah it's it's just a shame that it doesn't get out there yeah yeah uh i want to i want to talk a bit a bit about louis goo because Mm -hmm. i think one of the most fascinating acting developments of the 2010s is the way that louis goo is disintegrating on screen Mm. Uh, he, yeah, you mentioned this on Letterbox, I think, or something. Yeah, he he is an actor. Uh, he's in the <laughs> Don't Go Breaking My Heart films. Uh, he's in Drug War, of course, mm-hmm. uh, Romance mm-hmm. in the Thin Air. He's in a lot of Johnny Toe movies, and he got his start as a model. He's uh, he's very beautiful 
mm-hmm. man. And he always played very beautiful men in his early films and romantic comedies or, or even like uh, uh, Election, Election 2. He's, he's very handsome. He's very bronze. Uh, but as he's gotten older, I think he's, I think he's 50 now as he's gotten older, his roles increasingly involve him, uh, being physically mangled in some Mm -hmm. way. Uh, there's a, there's a whole series of, uh, not particularly good, uh, Hong Kong thrillers called, uh, overhead, overheard, uh, which, uh, there are three of them and they're like a lot of Hong Kong sequels, they are not related. There are different stories with like the same cast. Um, and in each one of them, Louis Gu gets dismembered. Like he loses an arm or a leg or something. He's just, he's falling apart. And this film, he's like literally rotting from within. And it's so fascinating mm-hmm. to me that mm-hmm. an actor whose, whose career is built on his physical beauty, as he gets older, his his roles are increasingly turned on the the dissolution of that. Yeah, and there yeah, there's nothing really, uh, almost nothing action oriented about about this role at all. There and, and there is a final scene where there is like a bit of action with him, but it's just pathetic. I mean, he's on the floor with kind of grappling with his brother, who he wants to get the heart from, and there's all this medical like instruments all over him, and it's just pathetic especially when you compare it to the the amazing action scene that's going going on outside that particular room yeah i don't know i just there's there's just something about that choice for for that Mm -hmm. actor to keep playing Mm -hmm. these roles where where he is falling apart that you know uh uh, do you think he's choosing it or I, I think so. I, I mean, I think it's it's bringing out something in him. Like even even mm-hmm. in Drug War, mm-hmm. like the the final scene of of Drug War when he like is, uh, when he's like uh, uh, strapped down, he's going to get like the lethal injection, and it's he's like he's just breaking. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's it's yeah. so it's so fascinating to watch this this the this man re- repeatedly kind of break himself down yeah in in film after film and Mm -hmm. you know i i am an auteurist i i believe in uh the auteur theory and i believe that actors can be auteurs and i think that louis ku is in Mm -hmm. in these films like it's bringing out something something personal yeah from him as a performer Mm -hmm. but it is really interesting when if he is kind of has been a major action star i mean someone who like that is going to be so conscious of of their of their body and well he, you know, he's, he's an action star in like a, in like cop movies like he's not okay. he's not a kung fu mm-hmm. guy mm-hmm. In, this, mm-hmm. in the way of like Wu Jing or, or Tony Jaa right but but, but yeah. if he, his whole career is played on his kind of beauty and yeah I mean even in in some of his early romantic comedies there's like hints of this there's uh there's one there's like a really farcical one with him and Sammy Chang uh that Johnny Toe directed that hinges on like, she like keeps giving him like medical treatments that end up like causing his like face to balloon or he like breaks out in spots and things like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. So there's just, yeah, there's something, something about Louis Gu and, and uh, him falling apart. Like well, it's, it's an interesting trend. Like keep, keep yeah. looking for Louis Gu movies and see where he, where he goes. Yeah. I was going to say, it makes me curious to what's going to happen next. <laughs> <laughs> with what he'll, what he'll do in his body. <laughs> uh, 
<clears throat> yeah, uh, the uh, I did want to mention that uh, the film was edited by Johnny Toe's regular editor, uh, David Richardson. Okay. And uh, I think that I think goes uh, towards kind of the the competence of of the way the action is put together, which is mm-hmm. which is so unusual. Like you remarked on it compared to to American films, and mm-hmm. I kind of mentioned the 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 kind of digitized fluidity of it. Uh, yeah. At first, I, I found it like a little off-putting because, like, the action is sped up at times, and it's sure. mm-hmm. it's it, and it's slowed down at other times, and it, it's very clearly manipulated. But yeah. but watching it a second time, it's just so it's so beautiful watching yeah. the the interaction between the movement of the camera and the characters in the mm-hmm. foregrounds and the backgrounds, like the 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 signature sequence, like halfway exactly halfway through the film, is the prison riot. Yes, and I was just going to say that. Yeah, so many planes of action going on up and down and like three dimensional. Apparently, it was the film was uh, shot in three D, and uh-huh. I think that would have been amazing to see that. Oh, it's such format. an amazing, yeah, that whole sequence is just kind of stunning to look at, the, the levels of what's happening all over the screen. Yeah, and and that, the, the I mean, I, I don't want to be too neat here, but the, uh-huh. the fluidity of those movements uh, kind of mirror the, the fluidity of the character interrelationships that we see that, that tie everything together. Like it all comes together in yeah. this, in this really dense web and it would be mm-hmm. totally wrong to have that thematically going on with the, the character relationships, the daughter and the organs and all of that, and then have action sequences that are all chopped up like a, like a born movie or something. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. yeah. So. And I think even that, like the the final scene with the um, the the three men fighting, that that also has a complexity to it that I think that most action films don't have, where it's you're invited to think about the relationships and interrelationships between the characters rather than just this is just an action scene. I mean, there's there's yeah. a web of connections here. And the the choreography for that for that final sequence is is so impressive, like the way that Jang Jin moves and. Uh, he, you know, again, it, it's fluid the way that he anticipates uh, his opponent's movements and kind of counteracts them. Like he he mm-hmm. takes their punches and he moves and they, and they kick, but he like moves his his mm-hmm. leg away just as they're moving. So mm-hmm. it's uh, it's all very watery and it it yeah. is all of a piece. And it's it's a it's a total film in a way that not a lot of action films are. Uh, yeah. I, I, yeah, I agree. I mean, there's that this fluid. It's thrilling. I mean, it's there, that fluidity that I think you just you don't see generally, and so it feels really fresh and just exciting. Yeah, I mean, even 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 like the best uh, kind of exploitation from Hong Kong or or from anywhere in the world, they'll have great action sequences, but there won't be much of a plot, or there won't be much of a theme, or or mm-hmm. they'll have like a really interesting story, and it'll be you know, you know, a, a new perspective on the world and it'll be shot really well, but the action will be just kind of, you know, hit or miss or, or rote. And, but this, this has it all, I think in, yeah. in a yeah. really impressive way. So I hope, yeah. I hope that that audiences find it when it does come out under whatever title. Yeah, I hope so too. I mean, I'm gonna make my husband Yuri watch it. I'm going to tell my brother not to watch it. You're like, you like Jackie Chan? This is the next, this is the next thing. <laughs> You've got to get into this. <laughs> right. Uh, so that is that.
for SPL2, A Time for Consequences. Uh, we are going to listen to some more music here. We are not going to rip off Prince. Uh, Mike actually, uh, speaking of Prince, is, uh, was on his way to Minneapolis, and on the airplane he wrote this song, and he said it's called Stalactites. So that is the Francis Farmer show for this week. Uh, we will be back in two weeks. Mike will be back. And uh, it is uh, time for the Seattle International Film Festival. And the next episode, we will be previewing said festival. It's going to go on for, what, the next three months or so. So we will have lots of SIF titles to talk about. Uh, you will be covering SIF for us, Melissa, yes, on the uh, yes. Seattle screen scene. So, I just got uh, my accreditation, so I'm good to go. Yeah. Are there any uh, titles? It really three, it's three months? No. <laughs> three months long? It's like six weeks It's long. like a it's, month, right? It, yeah. Yeah, it's ridiculously okay. long. It's like 40 days or something. It's, yeah, like, it's, a, it's a very long festival. Yeah, it's a biblical flood of a film festival. <laughs> uh, are there any titles that you're hoping make it onto the... Uh, the schedule uh, uh you know i haven't really thought that far yet mm. i think that there there are but i can't i, I no i think comes to the top of my head i i, I bet you sunset song will be one of them hey that would be good i won't have to wait around for the pickford although yeah, <laughs> yeah. well uh that we will good. we will know by this time next week and then and a week after that we will talk about it on the podcast okay great uh so if you are in the Los Angeles area and listening to this show, uh, you should be going to the Turner Classic Movies Classic Film Festival, which is going on this weekend. And I am going to post the show on Saturday. Uh, so you will have missed the shows that were on Friday, which is tomorrow as we're recording this. But you still have time to go to the TCM Film Festival on Sunday. And this is what is playing on Sunday at the Chinese Theater. Starting at 9.45 a.m., they have Douglas Sirk's All That Heaven's, Heaven Allows. Then they have Charlie Chaplin's The Kid, the Marx Brothers' Horse Feathers, John Ford's She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, and then finally, Vincent Minnelli's The Bandwagon. And I cannot think of any better way to spend Sunday, May 1st, than watching those five movies in a theater in Los Angeles. That is an amazing lineup. Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. Right. Yeah, you don't wow. even you don't even have to leave. You're, it's all in the same screen. You don't even yeah. have to like get a new seat. All of those movies, like you're just hitting every like beat yep. of <laughs> what you need out of cinema. Yeah. <laughs> right there. Yeah, absolutely. So go do that, Los Angelinos. That sounds great. Um, something else that's also playing um in los angeles coming up on friday may 6th is a restoration of some laurel and hardy shorts which john you haven't finished your your uh, laurel and hardy marathon i don't think no have you are we gonna <laughs> I, get back to that <laughs> so, someday someday i i i i 
Yeah. It's been like three years, I think, since I've actually written anything on that. <laughs> yeah. That was, you, 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 I think you took a shift into Hong Kong cinema or something like that, or yeah. I don't know, back yeah, into I got, it. I got, I got sidetracked. But that was a really fun project. Those shorts are great. Yeah. Great. Well, um, the, some of the shorts that are, show, are showing are, are some of my, my very favorites. Helpmates, um, Counting Hospital, and Music Backs are just classic um, best use of hard boiled eggs and nuts in a film, I think ever. Um, also one called the first mistake, which I haven't seen. And then, um, a longer film called the flying deuces, which also, I also haven't seen, but Laurel and Hardy are probably the, one of my, why I love film today, um, has to do with my, my early introduction to, um, Laurel and Hardy. Um, my parents got the, real to real um, movies from the library and we watched Laurel and Hardy shorts and they were our favorite thing ever. Um, and so this would be fantastic to go see on the big screen. Right on. We, we actually talked about Laurel and Hardy on one of the very, very first George Sanders shows. We, we talked about Sons of the Desert. Yes, uh, I remember that. And mm -hmm. I think we talked about Music Box in that episode also. I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah, but, uh, I think you did too. Yeah, Laurel and Hardy are, are fantastic. Yes. It doesn't get better than that. All right, so that is the Francis Farmer Show for this week. Uh, thank you to Melissa for filling in. Thank you for having me. Yeah, uh, it was uh, uh, nice, I think, for the listeners to listen to somebody who is not Mike and I. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, that remains to be seen. <laughs> hopefully, uh, hopefully we can we can do that more. That was uh, one of our goals when we when we became the Francis Farmer Show was to try and uh, integrate other people from Seattle screen scene uh, onto the show. Uh, so hopefully this is just the first of many times you will be appearing. That would be great. I'd love to come uh, back sometime. And of course you can, uh, read, uh, Melissa and, uh, Mike and me and, and several other people on, uh, seattlescreenscene.com where we talk about Seattle movies and movies, uh, that are playing around the country, but also in the Seattle area. Uh, we have a Twitter account at Seattle Screen, and you can email us at uh, seattlescreen at gmail.com. And I think that is it. There's a reason why Mike does the intro and the close for every show. <laughs> so I think it sounds pretty good. Okay. You got uh, it. Here is uh, more of Mike's music.